Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, it's good to see the Cordells back in the house. Um, it's just good to be together. And uh, I, feel, I feel particularly just weak as we sing the praises of our God. Um, just the reality of the gospel that there, there's none besides Jesus for us. If it wasn't for that one individual coming into our world, we would be lost. All that we take for granted in the gospel of God, his kindness, his mercies, his beauty, his glory, his eternal reward that he's laid up for us would be forfeited if Christ had not come for us. And so in the song that we sang, one line uh, stuck with me when the line said, he has done great things, we'll say together. If there was ever an understatement, he's done great things. The great things that he's done are the things we'll be singing about throughout all of eternity. He's done incredibly wonderful, magnificent things, and I just, I feel, uh, I tremble that I'm called now to open his word and talk about him. I hope that he'll keep me from error, so let me, let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, now for the privilege, um, the weighty task of just opening your word and holding all of us to st sit beneath it. Lord, I pray that only your glory would be seen, not um, my insufficiencies, not my weaknesses, not my errors. But through this uh, pitiful act that preaching is, I pray that all of us would just gain a glimpse of the risen Lord and we would be irresistibly drawn to him this morning. Lord, I just pray that everything else would fall by the wayside and we would see Christ as the angels in heaven see him now. The angels that are in his presence that never cease to cry day or night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I pray that you would just allow us to enter a bit closer into your throne room and all the, the cares, the worries, the burdens that we have and that we had when we came into this morning, this room this morning, would uh, be seen in their proper place, that they would fall by the wayside, and we would be liberated to worship freely, unencumbered, and just that our hearts would leap within us. So Lord, be with me, um, be with all of us now, I pray. Let your spirit do his work. It's in Christ's name, amen. simple question that I had this morning, uh, this morning and this week while I was preparing is just, what, why do we come here on Sunday mornings? Why are we here? Why do we participate in church? What are you hoping to get out of a sermon right now? And um, one of the interesting statistics, I don't, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but someone has said something like, 
90% of what a preacher says when he's preaching, you'll forget in a few hours by the time you walk out of here. So the application points and stuff that we try to, to bring out or that we try to lay before you, a lot of that stuff, if we were to ask you a week from now, um, what were some of the points of last week's sermon? You might not remember that, but in spite of that, the central aspect that's happening when we, whenever we open God's Word, when we're singing, is just that through the act of preaching or through the act of singing or through the act of prayer that you would be touched by the living God and that you would see His glory enough that if you remember nothing else, you would remember what it was like to be in His presence and you would be uh, drawn to want to enter it again and continue to draw near to Him. And so one of the, my favorite verses that has sort of hung over my life now is sort of a, a banner of why um, I want to be in, involved in Old Testament studies. I'm working towards trying to get um, an Old Testament degree and stuff like that is 2 Corinthians 3.18 when Paul says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into one degree, from one degree of glory to the next. And what's interesting, if you go home and go read that passage, what he says right before that is there's a veil over our faces whenever we're reading, particularly for Paul, the Old Testament. Whenever we read stories like the book of Daniel, uh, before coming to Christ, there's a veil that's over our eyes that veils our ability to truly see the glory of Christ through this text. But once we turn to the Lord, he says, that veil is removed and therefore, he says, now we all, those that have turned to Christ with unveiled face, the veil that was over our eyes when we would read stories like this, are able to see his glory more clearly now and are transformed by it. So with that in mind, the, the main thing that I want to do today is sort of just walk through the text, allow us to just encounter the story, um, not lay out application points, but my, my prayer, and I pray that you would be praying uh, throughout this morning, is just that God would help us to see the glory of Christ, particularly at the end. I sort of just want to run through the story and then reflect on the story at the end. Um, so with that in mind, I want to cover briefly where we were last week. So last week, uh, Hunter had covered the chapter, chapter 5 of Daniel, and the way that that chapter ended, there was a transference of power from world powers from one king to the next. So if you were to look at chapter 5, verse 30... It says that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And then in verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Um, as we enter chapter 6 this morning, I just want to set a bit of the, the background context to help us really enter into the story. Um, the history of the Middle East is fascinating. And um, really the, what's, what's in view in the beginning of Daniel is the Babylonian Empire. And we know from history that the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Chaldean Empire, uh, began in 625 B.C. when a king named uh, Nabopolassar had conquered the Assyrians, um, primarily through his son, the crown prince, uh, the leader of his army, Nebuchadnezzar. He established his kingdom in um, 625 B.C., and then for the next 86 years, the Babylonians became the world power. They were the center of commerce, the center of trade, the center of, center of politics. They were the center of the world. And during that time, the Jews, as a result of their sin, were exiled and were living under this 
um, world power. And during the last 20 years of their reign, there was a star rising in the east in the figure Cyrus the Persian. He had rebelled against his overlords, and he had begun the process of conquering the lands that surrounded Babylon, all in an effort to eventually converge on the city of Babylon and take over the empire. And so for the last 20 years of the Babylonian empire, Cyrus was sort of sweeping around the outskirts of the empire, drawing into the city and decimating their army, uh, such that by the time that he arrived at the gates of the city, the army was virtually decimated. He was able to conquer the city without a fight and wiped out the last ruler of Babylon, which was Belshazzar, or yeah, Belshazzar that we see in verse 30. And what Cyrus then did was Cyrus went out and began to consolidate his power to secure his rule in the other parts of the territory. And so he left his general, the general of his army, in charge of the city of Babylon and the territory of Babylon, and his general's name was Gubaru. Gubaru is actually the guy that is being mentioned here as Darius the Mede. Darius is simply a royal title. It's not someone's proper name. There were several Persian kings that had the name Darius. It just means royal one. It was similar to how the Egyptians used Pharaoh or how the Romans used Caesar, just to name the royal person uh, in charge. But this guy, he's in here. He's only ruling temporarily. That sort of helps us to understand some of the events that uh, transpire. He's been charged by Cyrus to maintain control, to maintain order, to uh, facilitate this transition of power. And because of that, because he's in such a precarious place, precarious place, we understand why he was susceptible to some of the things that happened to him in this story. So I want to run through it. Uh, We see Darius' new rule as the de facto king while Cyrus is out, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Uh, Now, this 120 satraps, these satraps are just a name of the Persian word for like officials, governors, those to manage the affairs of the empire. Uh, And we know that 120 was a bit excessive. Later Persian kings were able to rule over the same area with only 20 to 30 satraps. And so we see the fact that Darius is late... um, is setting up 120 just shows the, the heightened sense of make sure, making sure that he maintains order and stability and not wanting to um, cause a riot or rebellion. So he sets 120 people up to govern over the affairs, and over them, verses 2 and 3 say, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So as this happened before in the Babylonian Empire, even when the Persians take over this figure, Daniel, who is old by this time, he's probably 90 years old, and yet um, this figure that walks with his God, that walks in obedience to his Lord, that's been given an uncanny ability, a spiritual in-tuneness with the divine world, um, and his God rises to a place of prominence again. And just for a moment, I want to zoom out and sort of give you a glimpse of 
the way that this chapter lays out and sort of how we're going to walk through it, because it's really um, beautiful the way that the contents are structured. So if you were to look at, by the way, this, this artwork took me a long time, so we're going to take a long time to, to enjoy it. <laughs> so not this part. This was just a copy and paste. So if you were to imagine Daniel 6, the way that the content is actually um, arranged, it's arranged chiastically, which just means that sort of the way that the story begins is the way is similar to the events um, that transpire when it ends. And so, yeah, if you were to look, the way that the story sort of begins, the A section is what we just read in verses 1 through 3, is similar to the way that the story ends. Likewise, the, the second element of the story in the B section, you would say, is, this, is similar to the second to last section of the story. And the, way, the reason that the authors sort of set up the story like this is because the story converges on this middle point. The most significant part of the story would be what we're labeling here as sort of the D section, the middle of the story. And when we get down to that part of the story, we're sort of going to camp out and um, just meditate on some of God's glory. So if you go to the next one, I'll show you just a glimpse of this. So we just read the first three verses uh, you, might, you might label it as the story of how Daniel began to prosper again. And if you were to briefly just look at the last verse, after everything that happens to Daniel, if you were to look down at, at verse 28, you see that after all of Daniel's ordeal, the chapter ends, the last verse, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He's sort of gone through his ordeal, and he's ascended back up to where he began at the beginning of the story. Um, so with that in mind, we're just sort of going to walk through the layers of this text and get into the story. Um, so the second section, if you were to go to the next one, uh, the second section we might label as Darius's decree. There's one of the significant parts of the story is this decree that the king um, issues as a result of some of the pressure that's placed on him, and it spans from verses 4 through 10. Um, so let's read through that together, starting in verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Now just pause for a minute. That's really astounding when you think about it that these rivals of Daniel were not able to find any fault whatsoever in Daniel. Um, we're, when we look at politics today, when we look at the current political campaigns that are being run, um, politics are always fraught with stories of scandal coming out, of skeletons coming out. When people want to find the dirt on your life, the things that would embarrass you, that they can manipulate or exploit or just to bend the truth about you in order to tarnish your character, that always happens to nearly every political figure that we see. I remember um, even when uh, Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, was running as a potential Republican candidate, and I remember him saying to the media at one point, uh, I know that, the ri that my rivals are going to try to find dirt in my background, skeletons in my closet. Well, good luck. He basically challenged them to find some of his skeletons and stuff because he thought that his whole life he had attempted to live a godly life and that they wouldn't find anything on him. Sure enough, fair or unfair, they found stories in his background that they were able to exploit and um, throw out there in the media that began to cause Carson to dip in the polls. And this type of political gamesmanship um, has, has always happened throughout history. 
And the fact that these guys, these uh, rivals to Daniel, when they look at his life, they can't find anything in any of his conversations, in the company that he keeps, in the way that he conducts himself, in the way that he manages his affairs. We don't know how long they've been watching him, when they've been trying to find some dirt on this man, and yet it seems that he is perfect, that he is blameless, and there's nothing that they can find on him. And so the point where they realize that because this Daniel clings so tightly to his God that they would not be able to drive a wedge between him and his God and would instead try to drive a wedge between his God and their law. And that's precisely what they do if we keep reading in verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever, which is an odd sort of buttering up to the king at this point, knowing what we said at the beginning, that this guy is only there temporarily. Like he's not, when you say like long live the king and you know that he's only going to be there about a year, it's a bit disingenuous. Uh, Nevertheless, there's something that they're going to try to get across to him, and so they're um, coming about it through flattery. They go on in verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians." which cannot be revoked. So they're lying right out the gate. They're saying that all the high officials are in agreement on this um, decision. We learned at the beginning of the chapter there's only three high officials, so it's not like you can uh, miss one of, the, one of their opinions. And one of them is Daniel. There's no way that Daniel would have been signing on to this uh, petition to uh, worship Darius as a god and yet they sort of clearly do not consult with Daniel, and they go right behind his back. And they want to sign this into law. They want the king to ratify it. And they set up as a consequence that whoever violates this law will be cast into the den, or literally the pit, of lions. Um, this was actually a common torturing and form of punishment in the ancient world. As we see archaeological remains in some of these uh, territories of underground pits where animals were kept and starved, wild animals particularly, and just the enemies of the king would be cast down there and they would be killed almost immediately. It was a gruesome, um, horrible, cruel way to die, and yet it was enforced often. And these men, they're so full of just the poison of jealousy and uh, wickedness that This pious old man, Daniel, they want to cast him down there and see him mauled to death and torn and eaten. Nevertheless, because the lust of power is so enticing, um, the idea of being venerated as one of the gods, of being exalted, of seeing all of your people prostrate themselves before you and magnify your name and claim Uh, allegiance to your name. It's so attractive to Darius, and that on top of the fact that we know that he's trying to maintain order and rebellion, and these 
uh, officials are applying the pressure constantly upon him almost to say, if you don't go along with our wishes, there could be trouble for you. There could be uh, disruption in the empire. And so he acquiesces. Verse 9, it says, therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And so here at the end of this uh, second section, uh, verses 4 through 10, we see Darius sign the decree. It becomes law, an inviolable law that even he cannot overturn once he has ratified it. And yet in verse 10, it says, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks, gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So this guy's character is just emphasized to us, his impeccable character. Uh, before any of this happened, the fact that he was doing this praying previously is amazing in and of itself because Daniel, before uh, these people are trying to sabotage Daniel, he's enjoying prosperity. His, his life is great. There's nothing wrong in his life. And he's, he's in the highs of life where so many of us can so quickly forget God because we forget our need for him, our dependency upon him. And um, we begin to believe that we're doing things in our own power, our own strength, and we cease to rely upon God. And yet that's not the case for Daniel. And similarly, when life has reached its ultimate low, when the decree has been signed for his death, if he worships this God, even the lows of life do not rattle him. He is inflexible in his devotion to God. So we see his character just continually to be highlighted for us. And when we get to the end of the story, it will be clear as to what the author is trying to do through this. Um, the third section, verses 11 through 15, we see that once this decree has been ratified by Darius, we see that his enemies plot his death in verses 11 through 15, and they begin the final uh, events, uh, setting them in motion that will lead to Daniel's death, potentially. Verses 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God as they knew, they, as they knew that he would. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions? They're acting as they're completely bewildered that this is happening. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. At this point, he's confident in the law that he's established. Continuing on, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. These men then came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king. That it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And so they, uh, they manipulate the king. They appeal to his emotions and his fear for 
unrest to get the king to sign this law, sign this decree into law, and then they hold it up over the king's head as something to which even he must submit, all to secure their plans to put Daniel to death. And so we see at the very heart of this book now, or the heart of this chapter, I might say the D, the D section, that Daniel is sentenced in verses 16 through 18. It says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, or the pit of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He doesn't want Daniel to die. He's holding out hope that maybe, uh, just maybe, that Daniel's God will show up again and will deliver him. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Uh, When it says that no diversions were brought to him, this is like all the amusements that are readily available to the king, whether it's women or drink or food or festivities or anything to distract him Uh, to entertain him, to take his mind off of uh, what may be troubling him or worrying him. And he's so concerned for Daniel's welfare that he isn't able to enjoy any of them. He's not even able to sleep. And then let me just, I'm going to summarize the the sections as they sort of back out of the center of this text, and then I just want to talk about, reflect on the center part of this text particularly. Um, So at this point, it seems like Daniel's death is almost certain. It's sealed. There's nothing that can happen to save him. And yet, we see a great reversal in the plot structure as you sort of uh, build your way back out of this pit and out of the center of the text. We see the counter for um, the D section, that whereas Daniel had been sentenced to death, we see a great deliverance from death in verses 19 through 23. And I'll just read through them. It says, then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the mouth of lions? Then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel is thus delivered. And then whereas before Daniel's enemies had plotted his death, we see that in a great reversal, his enemies are actually sentenced to death in Verse 24, it says, And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Backing out further out of the center of the story, whereas Darius had issued a decree that no one would worship anyone but him. At the beginning of the story, he issues another decree now as a a result of this great deliverance at the end of the story, verses 25 through 27. 
Not only does he issue a decree, but he breaks out into a spontaneous doxology when he says, uh, verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And as we saw before, the story ends with Daniel reascending to his place of prominence in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So my question in looking at this story and sort of seeing how it centers on the center act of um, Daniel being delivered over to the pit of lions and certain death is just what is the, what's the point of this story? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this book? Why does this story fit in this book? And what's the point of the book within the Bible and the Old Testament? And I believe that some that uh, returning to what I said at the beginning of when Paul says that once we see the completed work of Christ and we go back and we look at the full panorama of Old Testament scripture, more of stories, stories such as this become uh, come into further light as to exactly what. God, through the Holy Spirit, was revealing to his people gradually over time. To really understand and put this story in its proper context, you have to understand how the Old Testament scriptures begin. Um, the Old Testament scriptures and the story of God begins with Adam, with God creating this man, Adam, who is to rule over his earth, to image him forth into the creation, to guard and protect his bride, his wife and to be uh, the image of God into creation. Very quickly, we see that this man falls. He falls into sin, and as a result of his action and his failure, sin and death and misery and frustration and murder and death and joylessness, depression, all the above, all these things enter into God's creation, and God casts them out of his paradise, out of his garden where they walked with him, where they enjoyed perfect uh, fellowship with him. But when he does that, God issues a promise that he will send a new Adam, a better Adam, one that won't fail where the first Adam failed, that will reverse the effects of sin, reverse the effects of the fall, and bring his people back into a state of paradise, an Edenic-like state. The story of Scripture, the scope of Scripture is, as we progress through this story, we're introduced to figures along the way where every time we are introduced to these new figures, they're portrayed in such a way where at first they appear to be the new Adam that we're waiting for. They're um, likened to Adam in many ways, and yet they're greater than Adam in many ways. And we're constantly asking ourselves the question, is this the one that we're waiting for? And then by the end of that person's story, we see their failure. We see that we're still waiting for someone else, and we need to continue to read this continues to build up throughout Scripture. So one of the earliest examples is you see Noah. Noah comes along. When he's born, his dad uh, issues what he believes will be the fate of Noah when he says that the reason I'm calling this 
son of mine, his name rest, is because I believe that he will cause his people to cease to toil from, uh, cease their toil and painful anguish from the ground that the Lord has cursed. Essentially, when he's first born, it seems that as we read that maybe Noah will be the one that will reverse the effects of the curse. And as we continue to read, the world is recreated through him. All that are with him and aligned with him are rescued into a new created world, and it seems as if maybe he is the one that we're waiting for. And yet we see as soon as he emerges from the ark that there's still sin in the world. There's still brokenness in his family. He's not the one that we're waiting for. We need to await another. Stories like these continue to build. And by the time we get to Daniel, there's so many things that we've learned to expect from this coming Adam, this one that we're waiting for. And Daniel, when we first encounter him, he appears to be perhaps the one that we're waiting for. Just listen to all that we've seen about Daniel up until this point in the Scriptures. He's blameless. In the beginning of the chapter 1, verse 4, he's described as someone who is without blemish, no defects. He's described in the same way that sacrificial lambs were described that were to be slaughtered for the remission of sins. He's described as one in whom the spirit of the gods is in a completely unique way. There is none other person on the earth in the entire realm of the empire that is like this Daniel. He's endowed with wisdom that is unmatched. He has an unnatural ability to interpret dreams and to foretell the future and uh, events that will happen before they actually happen. There's this odd story that happens in Daniel chapter 3 that we read about where after being introduced in the beginning of the book to these four main characters in the book, Daniel and his three friends, Daniel and his three friends, Daniel and his three friends, we see in this fiery furnace episode, Daniel's three friends being cast into a furnace, an all-consuming fire, and yet they are unharmed. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in there, he sees a fourth person, whose resemblance appears to be like one of the gods, he says. As the reader, when we first see that, the author is trying to get us to ask ourselves the question, when we first encounter that story, could that be Daniel? There's four main characters in the story. Is it Daniel? And then as we get to our story here in the lion's den, we see this showdown with the lion's. And again, it would be helpful to see what is the Lord doing in this central aspect of this story after we've seen all this about Daniel and his encounter with these lions. Well, throughout the scripture, the lions are very uh, symbolic with death, with being the agents of death. The enemies of God are described as lions, those who can kill you and maul you. And we see all these peculiar pictures throughout the scriptures of Lions. I'll give you two. In Judges chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, this is the story of Samson. By the time we encounter Samson in, this, in the scriptures, he's the latest one that we're meant to ask ourselves the question, is this the one that we're waiting for or should we expect another? And then this happens. It says, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. 
Why is that odd story in the scriptures? This odd story of Samson conquering this lion, destroying this lion that should have been uh, the one to kill him, to bring about death, this agent of death. And why does this happen as he's on his way approaching a vineyard, which is a garden-like paradise? He's walking towards a garden. There's a lion that is there to kill him, and yet he overpowers and conquers this lion who represents death. Could it be that we're starting to learn that the one that we're waiting for is the one who is going to conquer the lions, to tame death, to tame the very force that prohibits people from entering the garden or paradise of God? Samson ends up falling into moral um, failure. We see that he is not the one by the end of the story, so we continue to read through Scripture. We eventually come to a figure, David, and we see this odd story again in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 through 35. We see David as a young man having a conversation with Saul, who is the king at the time. And it says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's an odd story. Why do we see another encounter of, of one who, at this point, we've, get, we've been given every inclination to think that maybe David is the one that we're looking for. And he has a showdown with a lion. And when this lion tries to pluck off one of the sheep of his fold, he conquers this lion and destroys him and tears him apart to rescue the sheep. Why is that story in the Scripture? It's because there's a theme that continues to develop throughout the Scripture that the one that we're waiting for is the one who will conquer and tame death. And so therefore, by the time we get to Daniel in this story, what is the, why does this story center on this scene of Daniel being cast into a pit face off in a face-off with lions? And when uh, the pit is uncovered, we see that the lions are tamed, that they have not harmed him. It's because at this point in the scriptures, we're meant to think maybe Daniel is the one that we're waiting for. And yet you don't have to read very far. In fact, you get to the very next chapter when we learn quickly that no, it's not Daniel because he sees a figure coming in a vision, a figure that is coming in the future. He says in the next chapter, Daniel Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is not the one that we're waiting for, but we're still waiting for another. What becomes so beautiful is how by the time Christ comes, we not only see that he is the one that we have been waiting for, but the gospel is fraught with irony. So many things that are not what we would expect, what we've come to expect by looking at these figures in the Old Testament scriptures. In all of these stories, we see that these people who conquer the lions, who 
tame death, so to speak, are unharmed. The, the lions don't touch Daniel in the, the lion's den. He is unharmed. He emerges from that scene unscathed. Samson is able to overpower the lions without being affected by the lion himself, without being torn apart by the lion himself. And yet, by the time we see Christ, we see a very clear picture that, yes, this is the one who conquers death, who tames the lion, so to speak, but he does so by being mauled to death, by being killed, by being slaughtered by the lions themselves. In being devoured and killed by the lion, he conquers in the most ironic way the power of the lion or the powers of death. It's why when you... Uh, you might be all be familiar with the cry that Jesus utters on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you might have seen that in places like in Psalm 22. Christ is quoting parts of the psalm that were prophetic utterances that he, would, that he was going to say when he was on the cross. And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, you'll see this figure describing his enemies as lions that are standing with their, their mouths gaping open at him, ready to devour him, and he is ready to let them do it. The great irony of the gospel is in all the ways in which our expectations in some ways have been reversed. Another interesting detail in this story, an ironic detail in this story, who is it that is waiting for a verdict as to what happens to Daniel in this pit when the, when the tomb is sealed um, who is it that is fretting, that is losing sleep over what will happen to this important figure of God? It's the king. It's one of the most powerful figures in all of the world, second only to Cyrus. And uh, that makes sense to us given the value of this prophet Daniel. He's so holy. He's so pleasing in the sight of God that we would expect nothing less than kings to be trembling at the verdict of what happens to him. And we see that when the stone of his pit is rolled away. It's this king, this powerful figure that comes to check on him to see what has happened to him. And yet, in a very ironic way, we read of a similar story that's different pretty significantly with our Lord. When he is killed, when he is sealed in the tomb, when the stone that is covering his tomb rolls away, who is the first person that the Lord is pleased to have check on his tomb. It's not one of the most important and um, bright figures in the world. It's not kings that are awaiting the verdict of this important figure of God. When God's own son is in the tomb, who does he send to check on the tomb? One of the lowest people of society of that time. It's a former prostitute. It's Mary Magdalene is one that had been abused by men and sort of discarded, this person that was seen as no one in their society, an outcast. And God was pleased that when it was actually his son that was in the tomb that was um, facing death, to send this lowly person to check on him, this former prostitute. God doesn't need kings heralding his death. He's pleased with lowly um, lowly figures, outcasts of society to herald his good news, to run back and tell the others. It's a great irony. Similarly, before all of this happens to Daniel, he's a very prominent figure, a very powerful figure. He's got all types of wealth at his uh, disposal. He's a, a powerful, wealthy, prominent figure, and that's what 
we've come to expect of the prominent people of God. We see David. He's a wealthy man. He's a very powerful man, a very influential man, going all the way back to Abraham. We see that Abraham has been given gold and silver and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. He's a powerful, influential man. And so we've, we've come to expect that when this Messiah-like figure comes, he will be one that is endowed with splendor and glory and gold and all types of uh, grandeur. And yet when Christ comes into this world, he has none of them. He's, he says he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He's humbled himself to such a degree that all the pomp and all the grandeur that his people have been expecting from the Messiah, he lowers himself infinitely beneath their expectations. It's as if we start to see when we see the grand scope of Scripture why so many people were baffled when they saw Christ walking around, not conquering the Romans, healing the sick, saying that he would lay his life down. And they were so confused because in their scriptures, God had built up their expectations so high of what the worth and the grandeur and the majesty of this Messiah would be that when he came and he was so lowly and so humble and so meek that they were thrown for a loop. They couldn't imagine why or how this could actually be the figure that they were waiting for. And yet I think this is precisely what we're meant to see looking back on stories throughout the Old Testament, looking back on places like Daniel 6. We're meant to see the glory of God's grace, of his beauty, of his humbling himself so low and be astonished by it, our expectations being shattered, that he will lower himself so low that he would not avoid death, but that he would pursue death, that he would come as a lowly figure, not as a grand king that would have everyone, the throngs of people uh, waiting around him at every moment, but as one that was an outcast that was cast aside and that was slaughtered. And it's these things, like when Jesus finally does emerge from the grave and he's walking with um, some of his former prophets that are, or his former disciples that are devastated on the road to Emmaus. And it says that he opened up the scriptures to them and all these stories from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms of David, he describes to them his glory and describes to them that no, he was meant to suffer. And it says that their hearts were strangely warmed within them, that they leapt within them, so to speak. These are the things that we're meant to see that are meant to cause us, as Paul said, behold the glory of our Christ, of the real Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for and that has finally come. He came to give his life as a ransom of many, too many. He came as a lowly servant to give his life for all. And it's by beholding his glory in places even as Daniel, like Daniel 6, that we behold his glory and we're transformed by it. And so I don't have points of application to uh, give to you other than just behold the glory of our God. To walk with this Christ that lowered himself so infinitely for you and yet now has been exalted beyond our wildest imaginations, beyond anything that the Old Testament could capture or envision seated in the very throne room of God. Behold his glory that we might be transformed by it. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you, I prayed at the beginning that you would give us a glimpse of your glory. Lord, I pray that that has happened just as we've looked at your word together. Just that if nothing else is uh, remembered from this time, a certain feeling that arose in the heart, a warmness to Christ, a, a wondering at his glory and awe at his majesty, that that would linger in our thoughts. That we would want to return to the well again to draw more of that water and be renewed by it and be transformed by it. Lord, when we leave this place, I pray that we would be drawn to walk with you, to pray more, to tarry with you more, to be more motivated to model Christ in our conversation and how we relate to others, those that we love, our family members, our co-workers. Lord, I just pray that your glory would stay with us, that it would be inescapable, that we would be like the psalmist who said that whether they ascended to heaven or descended to Sheol or made their place in the outermost parts of the sea, that your presence would be inescapable to us and that that would be welcomed by us. Lord, I just pray that Jesus would truly be all for us, that we would be reminded that we have nothing but him and we need nothing but him. Lord, in the, in the end, when you consummate all things, when we do see how highly he has now been exalted, we will sing together that he has done great things, knowing that that doesn't even begin to describe all of the greatness of the things that you have done. And so, Lord, just cause us to draw near, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Going to transition to a time of the Lord's Supper. And our Lord, when he was walking with us in his humility and his lowly state, he instituted the Lord's Supper as an ongoing practice for us to remind ourselves of our need for him. As we take in the bread, we're reminded of his body that was broken for us. As we drink of the cup, we're reminded of his blood that is shed for us. And we take it in, reminding ourselves that he is the sustenance of our lives. He is the one that sustains us. He is the source of our life. And so if you are a believer in this time, I pray that you would just go to him in your prayers and your affections. And when you are ready, that you would partake of this meal with us. If you're not a believer, um, this meal is not for you, but this time is still for you to draw near to the living God. And just pray that he will cause you to see his glory and be transformed by it. So when you're ready, let's...